all of you joining us for this afternoon's Trinity Forum Conversation with Professor Alan Jacobs on his new book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, The Reader's Guide to a Tranquil Mind. The poet W.H. Auden once wrote that art is our chief means of breaking bread with the dead. Our guest today, who is among the world's foremost scholars of Auden, takes his counsel quite seriously, if not literally. In his compelling book, inspired by Auden, Breaking Bread with the Dead, he seeks to show his readers that engaging with the often provocative, strange, even unsettling writings of the past offers us not only the possibility of broadening our outlook or deepening our understanding, but also growing and thickening our reserves of resilience, imagination, and empathy, what he refers to as our personal density. At a time when virtually all of us must fend off an hourly onslaught of superfluous information and navigate a social media landscape shaped by algorithms that steal attention and withhold context, as well as populated by legions of clueless yet cruel trolls, it's tempting and understandable to seek tranquility or at least relief by retreating to the familiar. But our guest today argues for exactly the opposite approach, to forego retreat in favor of an adventure into the long ago and far away, to begin a conversation with and be challenged by, interrogate and argue with voices from the past who have something to say as well as something to give and to both extend and receive the sort of intellectual hospitality that expands our world and ourselves in a matter that leaves us both more internally robust as well as tranquil. It's a provocative claim and a countercultural, even controversial approach. And there are few who can make it with the wisdom, erudition, or literary elegance of our guest today, Dr. Alan Jacobs. Alan is a scholar of English literature, a writer, and a literary critic who serves as the Distinguished Professor of the Humanities at the Honors College at Baylor University, having previously taught at Wheaton College for nearly 30 years. A prolific author and a wide-ranging thinker, he's written for publications as broad as The Atlantic, Harper's, Comment Magazine, The New Yorker, The Weekly Standard, and The Hedgehog Review, among many others as well as published 15 different works in literature, theology, and cognitive psychology, including How to Think, The Book of Common Prayer, a biography, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, which we discussed with Alan just a couple of months ago, and of course, his brand new release, Breaking Bread with the Dead, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Alan, welcome. Thank you so much, Sherry. It's great to be here. Well, it's really good to have you. So of the many books you have written, I'm betting this is the first time you've written what you called a self-help book. And you make the interesting argument that engaging with old books, even when they're often unjust, racist, or otherwise retrograde assumptions or arguments, instead of being triggering, actually helps one stay tranquil in the here and now. So why would old books promote serenity? Yeah, um, thank you. That's a, first of all, thanks for the wonderful introduction, uh, which I think shows um, that you get exactly what I'm trying to do in the book. And, and thanks for this question. I, I think that um, 
First of all, I do want to say that I really am kind of serious when I call it a self-help book. Uh, there are many, many different reasons why one might study the past, um, thousands. But I really am focusing on why it might help our, uh, what I call our personal density to improve our, um, increase our temporal bandwidth. And the idea uh, we can talk about those terms maybe a little later on, but the idea goes something like this. When you are engaged with the works of the past, you are dealing with difference. You are dealing with people whose, whose whole world is different than yours. People with different experiences, with a different outlook, with different ideas. And, but, and you're doing so in an environment that you control we all know how difficult it can be to try to maintain our patience. Um, we, we certainly don't have any shot at serenity. We're just trying to maintain our patience when we're dealing with people who we strongly disagree with. But when it's the voices from the past and we are visiting their world uh, and, and we assume the posture of, of visitors, of guests, then we can I think, get a little bit of distance on our emotions. They're not going to talk back to us. They're not going to fight back. They're not gonna do anything that will hurt us. If, if the encounter ends up being a little too intense for us, well, we can just close the book and go away and then come back to it later on when, when we've calmed down a little bit. It is, it is uh, training in encountering difference, but in a way that we have enough control over that it it doesn't have to agitate us and frustrate us. But maybe if we do that for a while, we can get a little better at dealing with our immediate neighbors as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about those terms and what you mm -hmm. mean by personal density and how it is mm -hmm. either formed or thickened. Yeah, so that, that phrase comes from the American novelist Thomas Pynchon, and it's in one of his novels uh, called Gravity's Rainbow, which is an extraordinarily difficult novel. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he, uh, there's a character in Gravity's Rainbow. He's a German engineer uh, named Kurt Mondaugen, and he talks like a German engineer. Uh, and at one point he says, uh, he, he coins what he calls Mondalgan's Law, and one of the con conceits of, of uh, Gravity's Rainbow is that everybody knows it, that it's all, you know, it's totally famous, even though, of course, Thomas Pynchon is just making it up. And, um, and Mondalgan's Law goes like this, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. And what he means is that if you have greater temporal bandwidth, what he calls the, the width of your now, he says, then what that does, when, you're, when your approach to your everyday life reaches into the past and imaginatively reaches into the future, then that increases your personal density. And, and I think maybe one of the best ways to understand what he means by personal density is to think about what the Apostle Paul says when he warns Christians against being blown about by every wind of doctrine. And I think if you're, on, if you're on social media all the time, if you are on the internet all the time, then the, the winds of doctrine, as it were, the winds that, uh, of, of uh, public opinion are blowing really, really hard. And it, if, you, if, if that's where you spend your whole life, you don't have 
the personal density to resist that. The harder those winds of public opinion blow, then the farther you are going to be carried away by them. And so when Mondalgan says, when this character says, uh, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth, he's saying that the more you understand about the past, the more you understand about human experience, and by the way, this was equally true of space, understanding other cultures is extremely valuable, even when they're in our own time. But because we have a kind of a, um, a global culture now, um, getting into the past is the way to get really, really alien experiences. And that gives us some perspective on our own moment. And when we have that perspective on our own moment, then we are able to judge things from a more secure and stable position. We have the personal density that allows us to do that. And we're not just simply being blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's the core idea. I think probably many of our viewers are wondering about something that you sort of alluded to, which is, uh, can this kind of density be achieved through not just by going back, but by going more, uh, reading more broadly, uh, reading outside the Western canon and uh, choosing books written by someone other than dead white males, finding uh, those of women and people of color, both dead and alive? Does it have the same, um, I guess, uh, potency and in increasing mm -hmm. our, our density. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, first of all, I think that's a very valuable thing to do. I, I, uh, I taught for many, many years, I taught a course in African literature and, and um, I, I love teaching that class and I would be happy to give, you know, book recommendations to people who want to study it because it is a, a way of stepping outside of our own experience. But even even when um, even when you're reading um, a, a writer like Chinua Achebe or, or Wole Shoyenka or Bessie Head from Botswana, they may be from a different part of the world, but they're still people whose experience is a 20th century and 21st century experience, and it has a lot in common with our own. It's it's recognizable in a lot of ways, and and one of the fascinating things about reading it is that sort of tension between sameness and difference, like, oh, you know, you're experiencing some things that I'm familiar with, but because you are African in a very different way, because you're from Botswana or from Nigeria or from wherever it happens to be, and, and so there are, there are definitely differences, but there's also a kind of a commonality which results from um, the globalization of experience, which in turn results from the globalization of media, right? So there is, there's, for instance, a great story in Wally Shoyenka's um, autobiography, one of his several works of autobiography called Ake, which is the name of the village that he grew up in, in, in central Nigeria. And he, you know, they listen to the radio and on the radio, they hear about this terrible man named Hitler. And they start talking about, you know, what's going to happen when Hitler invades Nigeria. They, they you know, he, he and his fellow children are all convinced that Hitler is going to come and attack them at some point. And you know, it's, it's a very different way of encountering Hitler than you would have had if you were living in the US or in Europe, but it's still, it's the, recognizably the same world. They're listening to the BBC. They're listening to, to um, international English radio. And therefore, it's a different world, but it's very recognizable. You move far enough into the past, 
and it gets almost unrecognizable. Right? These people who are, whose experience day to day is so different than ours, whose core assumptions are so different than ours, that it's a, uh, there's a strangeness there that I think is the most valuable part. It's the most valuable part of the experience is finding what's strange and trying to encounter something that you wouldn't find anywhere else, uh, that you're not gonna hear uh, from day to day. Um, and that, I think, is where you can really start building that density. So you're a professor, and uh, we hear a lot about students objecting to certain old works, uh, feeling triggered, and the like. And you've actually made the argument that our information overload now is not unrelated to um, how easily we feel triggered by or defiled by old works. I'd love for you just to discuss that a little bit more. Yeah, I so... We, we live in, uh, there are two phrases that I borrow from sociologists to describe our moment. One is uh, uh, Hartmut Rosa is a German sociologist who talks about social acceleration, the sense of, of, of things continue, not, not just going fast, but getting faster and faster and faster and our difficulties in keeping up. And uh, a, a French uh, thinker named Paul Virilio, who, who says that the peculiar thing about that experience is that we all feel that we are at a frenetic standstill, which I think is a great phrase, a frenetic standstill, that we're, we're, we feel like everything is just moving a zillion miles an hour, but we're actually not going anywhere. We're just kind of stuck in place. And I think that's because we everything is coming at us so fast we're getting so overwhelmed by the information that we hardly have the opportunity to do anything except just kind of deal with it um i was writing something about this a few weeks ago and i was uh i was i was writing the uh, the phrase the fire hose of information and then i looked down and at, uh, looked at my screen and i saw that i had written the dire hose of information <laughs> and i think that's actually a pretty good word for it <laughs> we're, we're we're dealing with the dire hose mm -hmm. and when that's happening right the mo our first uh, and and very rational response is to practice a kind of triage bat like battlefield triage you say okay well this i'm going to deal with and this I'm going to set aside for later, and this I'm going to totally ignore. And so when you're having all of that information, somebody comes at you with an idea that's very strange or that at least seems to be offensive, then you're like, nope, nope, not doing that, ruling that out, not going to deal with it, not going to listen to it. And it's really just kind of self-preservation, you know, that makes you, that, that, that gives you that, that um, desire to get away from the thing, especially if that thing feels like it is defiling you in some way, like this is offensive and disgusting. And, and no, I'm not going to deal with that. You know, and you'll hear people say sometimes life's too short to deal with stuff like that. And, you know, I sort of, I get the feeling, I get the feeling, but we need actually to be able to discern the difference between ideas that are truly offensive and ideas that only seem to be offensive because we actually haven't understood them yet. And that is what stepping back and stepping away from the dire hose allows you to do. And, you know, as it is with like uh, any of us who've had children know that you, you, it doesn't work just to say no to children. You have to be able to give them an alternative. You have to be able to say, don't do this, but do this instead. And adults are exactly the same. 
Um, if you tell them, get off of Twitter, get off of Facebook, get off of Instagram. Well, I mean, you can say that, but what are they supposed to do instead? And what I want to suggest is stay away from those things long enough to read something from the past peacefully, quietly, at your own pace. I mean, just the very act of reading a book itself, being disconnected from the internet while you're reading, that's already a step in the right direction. And then if it's a voice that's going to tell you something you would never in a million years hear uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, then that's added value. It's just so good in so many ways for enabling us to get out of the dire hose and to uh, then when we come back to it, be maybe a little more balanced and a little more able to make discerning judgments rather than just have emotional reactions. Let's talk a bit about how one actually reads. And you gave a bit of advice to your readers that uh, some people might consider a little bit unexpected, which is you said that so often people are given, are encouraged to read old books, to set aside their assumptions, you know, to enter into the text um, and enter into the world of the old text. And you said, I think this is bad advice. And you advocated for something that you called double reading. What is double reading and how can we do it? Yeah. I I, I've always thought that, that, that it's bad advice when people say you should suspend your judgments. Uh, you, should, you should set aside your own personal beliefs when you're reading the works of the past. But if you're setting aside your own judgments and you're setting aside your own beliefs, then how are you going to learn anything from those works that is going to be able to affect you? No, you need to keep your own, your judgments in, in play, but all of them not just some of them. Um, so I'll give you an example. In, in a, I, am, I am so, so blessed to be able to teach old books um, all the time. And um, in, in my class the other day, I was in one of my classes, we were reading Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. And that's not a super old book, but it's, you know, a couple of hundred years old. That's, that's long enough to make it a somewhat different world uh, than the one that we live in every day. And it was really interesting to work with my students over one of the characters in that book, Sir Thomas Bertram, because Sir Thomas is very much a kind of patriarch of the old school. You know, he is a man of dignity. He is a man who values his family's social standing. Um, he, he disparages any ideas that would challenge the existing social order. Um, it would be easy to make a kind of, of um, you know, bogeyman out of him. But I, I think all of my students recognized that he's an intensely human character because during the course of the story, he comes to realize how many bad decisions he made in the raising of his children. And at the end of the book, he really has to struggle with this sense of failure that he, he did so much wrong that he can't fix. Um, and he, but he takes comfort in the good things that have come about um, and, uh, and, and tries not to be made miserable by the bad things. 
And he's just a, an utterly admirable character, even if he happens to hold a set of views that uh, those of us who are more democratically you know, inclined might not like. We might not want to live in a society as hierarchical as the one that he lives in. And that's totally fine for us to think that the hierarchical structures of that society are not politically and socially ideal. But let's also not set aside our ability to recognize how wonderful it is when a person is actually able to say, I messed up. I did not act wisely and I need to act more wisely in the future. How often do we even hear that, right? I mean, that's not the, like, it's not like the most common thing that we hear from anybody these days. Um, and that, by the way, I think is also a little bit related to social media in the sense that you put yourself out there as having a particular position, you know that a thousand people might retweet it. And, and so then the inclination when you're challenged is to try to double down. Um, you know, and, and justify yourself and defend yourself. To see an example of a proud, dignified man who has to go back and sit in his room and think, I was foolish, I was unwise. That's a really powerful thing to see. And it's something that we can admire, even if we don't share his politics. And so it's the, the, the idea is not suspend your beliefs, but keep all of your beliefs in play. If you are democratically inclined and you don't think that a society should be that hierarchical, keep that in play, but also keep in play your belief that it is good to acknowledge with humility your own sins and shortcomings. Mm -hmm. um, and that way you can have a really complex and nuanced understanding of the text that actually helps you to have a more complex and nuanced understanding of yourself. That's how I think it works anyway. So in addition to writing books about pedagogy and old books, you've also written a fair amount about social media. And I'm curious uh, the extent to which you would believe that the medium itself has something to do uh, with our, our lack of density. Uh, we're getting more and more of our information from social media. Right. We are, as a whole, reading less, reading old books less, reading novels less, reading for pleasure less. We comprehend what we read less. And we are more, uh, we are tending toward social media that are themselves quite ephemeral. I think of Snapchat, where it is an image that disappears. Um, to what extent is the medium itself contributing to our lack of density as opposed to the content. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, one of the things that people will often say is that, you know, technologies are neutral, it's just how we use them. And that is simply not true. Uh, no technology is neutral, none. Um, every techno, and, and I'm talking about knives and forks, right? And not, you know, a knife is not neutral a knife is something which is designed for a particular purpose and it is easy to use it for that particular purpose and it's hard to use it for another purpose, right? Fork, similarly, we can say, it, it makes no sense to say, well, go ahead and eat your soup with this fork because after all, technologies are neutral. It's just how you use them. No, you can't eat your soup with a fork, right? It will, the liquid will pass between the tines of the fork. This is reality. And so every technology has affordances, uh, as the students of technology call it. That is, it, uh, it, it, it affords certain possibilities, and it either 
disables or sidelines other possibilities. So social the the especially twitter i think uh what it the affordances of twitter are to reply immediately and to share whatever you find most striking whether you find it striking for good reasons or for bad reasons and so that's what creates you know it was a it was a terrible day for humanity when one of the engineers at Twitter created the retweet button. Um, because what that does is allow um, some really nasty stuff to spread at an incredibly rapid pace. And when everybody in your feed is retweeting the same thing, you think that that is a lot bigger than it actually is. You think, it's, you think the idea is more prominent than it actually is. You have no ability to discern what's really commonplace and versus what's rare you're just you're just at the mercy of whatever is the dire hose is is sending you so one of the things i've noticed is that since i've since i've gotten off social media and i i do most of my uh i do most of my news reading on a weekly basis um uh, i subscribe to the economist and one of the things I love about The Economist is that at the beginning of each week, of each issue, it's got this little list of here are the main things that happened in the world over the past week. And, and that's often how I find stuff out. And sometimes I discover that between one issue of The Economist and the next, that some of my friends who are on social media have been through about four cycles of outrage about something, you know, where they were really mad about something. And then they found out that the thing they were really mad about wasn't true. And then they got really mad at the person who told them about the thing that they found out wasn't true. And then something else comes across that makes them even angrier than they were before. And then they forget about the former thing, you know, and they've, they've been through this cycle like four times and I have no idea what's going on. I'm just completely, um, it's, I, I mentioned to you before we got started that, um, if my son hadn't texted me this morning, I wouldn't have known that the president has, has contracted uh, COVID-19. And you know what? It would be totally fine if I didn't know that. It would be totally fine. I mean, you know, I will, I'll find out in next week's issue of The Economist. And so what, what this is encouraging is bite-sized um, pieces of information, uh, you know, with the scare quotes, because it's often not information, it's misinformation, processed instantaneously, and then replaced almost immediately by something else. And that that affordance that that those those affordances really have a paralytic effect on our minds. Um, because that's, that's what Virilio means when he talks about frenetic standstill is that I can't, I can't even fully process the first thing before the next thing comes along. And then I can't process that before the third thing comes along. And this idea of being able to slow down your reception of information, read it in, in, in much bigger chunks, set it down and think about it, pick it up and read it again, make notes in the margin or write in a notebook, you know, this, just that slowness of that, that is in which you are not consuming, but rather you are reflecting. There's the old, um, uh, in, in medieval, uh, certain medieval theologians um, said that the thing to do with scripture 
is to uh, do what cows do. You chew the cud, you chew it, uh, you, you swallow it, you fetch it back up again, <laughs> chew it some more. Um, and, and the idea is that you're continually masticating, right? Um, and when you have something that is of, of substance, it's something that is of value, something that is beautiful, it rewards that kind of repeated, reflective attention. And I, I think that makes you, for it's, it's pacifying. It gives you a certain degree of peacefulness and serenity, what I call in this book, tranquility. And it makes you less vulnerable to the social media tsunamis. Um, they can wash over you without, without blowing you, washing you away because you have the personal density to withstand them. Before we go to questions from our viewers, I need to ask, I mean, one of the things I've loved about your book is that it's clearly a work of intellectual hospitality describing intellectual hospitality. Mm. You know, both the invitation to give our attention to voices from the past, uh, as well as the invitation to join in a conversation that began long before we did. But for, um, for anyone now, we have an excess of not only legitimate claims upon our time and attention, but an excess of invitations, both from right. the ephemeral and from the substantive and worthy. And it can be very difficult to prioritize what we right. give our attention to. Uh, you've made this in many ways your life's work. How do you decide what invitations to accept first? Uh. You know, I don't, that's a really hard question to answer, or it's not hard to answer, it's hard to answer in a way that's useful to somebody else. Um, I think what, what I have done over the years is to um, try to pay attention to my own patterns of behavior and to, you know, I, I have a, I have notebooks. I, I, I keep track of what I read and what I think about what I read. And I try to go back and revisit those. And, and, and what I've gotten better and better at over the years is developing a kind of a sixth sense for what I need to listen to now and what I can set aside. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know that there's any way to do that except by learning from your own experience, right? To be able to say, well, you know, I heeded this invitation. How did that work out? Um, and, and just kind of build up uh, a whole body of knowledge based on your own history. So I think it's not enough just to read, but also to find a way to interact with what you read and record that in such a way that you can see your own history. There is a, um, there's a, one of the 17th century Puritans uh, is recommend, recommends keeping a, um, uh, a spiritual diary or journal which I don't do. I don't do, at least not in the sense that he was talking about. And he said, I need that so that I can see my life in frame from time to time, which I think is a really interesting word. Like you, you, you step back away from your experience 
And you know how, you know how when you have, um, if you go to a museum and you're looking at a painting, sometimes you realize you're standing too close to be able to see it. And then you have to back up and mm -hmm. find that right distance so that you can take in the whole picture. Well, that's what a kind of a record of our experiences as readers allows us to do with our own lives, our own experiences, to step back and see that pattern. And once you are become more aware of the patterns that you have, then you can become a better judge of what it is that you need to do in the future. Um, and again, I think that's a matter of personal density. I feel that having gotten out of the dire hose, uh, I am better able to make decisions that are meaningful and appropriate for me. Um, I've just got more time to think <laughs> about what it is that I want to devote my attention to, and I'm not letting somebody else determine what I should uh, be giving my attention to. So that may not help anybody in specific ways, but I think it does maybe suggest the kinds of kind of personal practices we need to have that will help us to learn from our own experience and not just have that experience. Great. So our first question comes from viewer Michael Lundy, and Michael asks, this sort of controlled time travel you advocate echoes mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis's admonition to read old books. I think mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis actually advocated reading at least one old book for every uh, new one. How does this help understand the nature and dangers of the ever-narrowing nowness of today's radicalized political tone? Yeah, I think, I think uh, if, if I'm remembering rightly, Lewis said that the ideal ratio is three old books for every oh. uh, one new one. So he was, he was very committed to the old. Yeah, and Lewis's view was, was this, that um, uh, there's, there's a lot that I could say about this. Um, uh, so let me try to, to summarize it uh, as, as best I can. There's a, there's a passage in, in one, of, one of his books where he says um, that, uh, and he actually, uh, the, the historian uh, Alfred North Whitehead makes exactly the same point in his book, Science in the Modern World. Both he and Lewis say that the most significant beliefs of a given period are not the things that they argue about. It's the things that they don't argue about because everybody agrees. Um, that is the, the, the key. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was actually telling my students this the other day, and I said, we have these incredibly intense political arguments, but we never have arguments about whether or not we should have an absolute monarchy. That's not, that's, you know, that just isn't on the table because there is just kind of this agreement that whatever kind of government that we have, some sort of representative democracy is what, what we ought to have. And, and that's, we don't, we don't have to argue about that because that at least we agree on. And I think the great thing about, or one of the many great things about going back in the past is the ways in which it enables you to realize, among other things, how much we actually do have in common. There, there, we, we may think we have absolutely nothing in common, but that's because we're only aware of the things that we're arguing about, not the things that we take for granted. And so I, I think that in a strange sort of way, recognizing the, 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 the radically alien character of many thinkers of the past ought to enable us to have a little bit more charity towards our neighbors. 
and to find some common ground, maybe not as much as we would like to have, but something on which we might be able to build or at least to have a conversation rather than a shouting match. So Jay Wyland asks, how does music and other word works of art add to our density? Mm. Yeah, that's, I, so I am, uh, I, I used to, um, I, uh, one of the uh, little parlor games I like to play is to ask people if you could lose, if you had to lose either your eyesight or your hearing, which, which would you give up? And uh, to which people almost always say, how about if I lost one ear and one eye? But no, 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 that's not how this works. Um, and I, I, even though I am the most devoted reader imaginable and I don't do audiobooks, um, I, I would have to have my hearing because music is so vital to me. And, um, and then I would learn how to use audiobooks <laughs> at that point. But I, I love, uh, music is so, uh, that is one of the great sources of tranquility for me. The reason I would, and in fact, I, I could, could have written a book just recommending that, but um, I, I think that the particular value of old books See, the, the, the value of music is that it, it, it takes me out of the realm of words and ideas uh, altogether into, and I'm thinking of pure music here, and I'm thinking of instrumental music. It takes me out of that world altogether, the world of ideas and debates and, and, and conflict, and it certainly gives me other kinds of conflict, but mm -hmm. it's, it's so different than the verbal interactions and the textual interactions that we have all the time that it's really, really valuable. But what's so great about old books is their power to let us hear the voices of people who are so different from us, who are articulating ideas that we would never think of, experiences that we've never had, and yet who are recognizably human. Um, what, I'll just give a quick example of that. There is, there is a, 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 this is a story that I've told, I think, in three different books because I, I love it so much. When, when Machiavelli was exiled from Florence, he, his political allies fell out of power and he lost his place and he had to go out and live in the countryside outside of Florence. And he talks about how he would go out into you know walk around in the fields but then he would end up kind of gravitating down to a nearby village and there'd be a little you know tavern in the village and he would get into arguments with the agricultural workers so he's basically getting in these shouting matches with the local rednecks and then he says but then i would you know I, I would embarrass myself. I would behave ridiculously. He says, and then I would go home and I would take off my working clothes and I would put on my robes and I would go into my study and there I would encounter the great uh, thinkers and artists of the past and they would receive me with hospitality and treat me as an equal. And he said, and this is what I was born to do or to do, you know, not arguing with the local drunkards down at the tavern. That wasn't getting him anywhere. But, but it's interesting because he kind of says, I couldn't resist it. I can't resist getting into that sort of thing. And that was the equivalent. It's the 16th century 
you know, uh, Tuscan countryside version of Twitter, right? <laughs> where he's, he's having these, these fights. And, but then he finds, no, there's real dignity and there's real communication to be had in exchanging thoughts with these people. And that, I think, is the really distinctive thing about old books as opposed to music or the visual arts or especially old book, uh, old music and old art. Those are all wonderful, incredibly powerful things, and I would love to talk about them at more length. But I especially like the idea of the voices from the past and uh, the particular humanizing effect they can have upon us. So Heather Black asks, what is the role of humility within this framework for reading of the past? I think if you, you know, if you go to the past really willing to hear, really willing to hear, you may find yourself with the hum humility to take seriously ideas that you would never take seriously if they were presented to you by someone of your own time and place. It's, it's not necessarily that you would come to agree, but it, you, you, you can imagine a human context in which someone might think of these ideas. There's an example I give in the book of just this absolutely wonderful writer, Dorothy Osborne. She's, um, uh, I, I think, the greatest letter writer in the English language and is just an amazing, she's like Jane Austen uh, 150 years before Jane Austen because she was writing in the 1640s and 50s. But all of her writing is letters to her fiance. And she actually speaks really disparagingly of women who write. She says, I, you know, if I didn't sleep for a fortnight, it wouldn't come to that. She has, she's uh, just this is a terrible thing to her. And then when she gets married, then that's it. No more writing because she's with the, the person she loves and she doesn't need to write the letters anymore. And it's just, it's such a strange experience because on the one hand, I'm reading her and I'm thinking, you're one of the most wonderful writers I have ever read. I, I wish you had written novels. And she's like, nah, I don't care about any of that stuff. You know, I only wrote because I had to, and I had to because I was separated from the person I loved. And then once, you know, we shared the same bed and sat at the same breakfast table, then I didn't need to write letters anymore. And that's just... I'm, I, I, on the one hand, I'm thinking, oh, the, how terrible, you know, the, the world needs your gift, you know. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, wow, how interesting mm -hmm. that someone would think that way, that you can't imagine anyone today thinking. It's just fascinating to reflect on how she might have come to see things that way, even if I regret it, which I do. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think just that, I, I think that encounter, when you have a real encounter with the past, it almost forces you into a position of humility where you're having to listen to something that you didn't really even plan to listen to. And yet there it is. So Stephen Watts asks, what authors have most increased your personal density? I think um, the, the most important writer for me uh, in my life has been W.H. Auden. And I have been enormously privileged to be able to, uh, to study his work, to write about it, to edit. I've edited two of his books, um, critical editions of, of his books, and I've got another one that I'm beginning to work on now. And I think 
I think one of the reasons for that is that Auden was um, his his best critic, who is also his literary executor, Edward Mendelssohn, said Auden was the first major poet to be completely at home in the 20th century. He didn't spend his time longing to live in some other time in some other place as T.S. Eliot had done and as Ezra Pound had done and as William Butler Yeats had done. He was he was a 20th century person and he knew it and he was at home. But because he was at home in the 20th century, he felt free to draw on the wisdom of all the ages. And so his, uh, just trying to understand his poetry and understanding what it was he was reading and where, you know, where these ideas came from and what he's drawing on, that has been an education in itself. And I think it's a great example of what the previous question was about is the, the humility Auden has in, in relation to the writers of the past has probably done more to shape my own desire to have a similar humility. I just, he, he has just meant the world to me. And I, I'm so grateful that I discovered him. It was in, I didn't really discover Auden until the very last course I took in graduate school. And then I had to try to sort of restructure my whole, um, my dissertation and everything to try to spend more time with him. And he has really been great company uh, over the decades for me. So our next question comes from Eric Bateman. And Eric writes, do you, and if so, how do you see your book jumping the gap between self-help for individuals and help for our common public life? Many of the issues around cancel culture, especially in the university, have to do with mm -hmm. questions of the public good. Is it okay for professors to ask victim, victims of abuse to read texts that might bring up painful memories? Is it okay to give disproportionate public attention to authors with problematic views, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Does Breaking Bread with the Dead have anything to say about these sorts of bigger questions? I certainly hope so. And, and in fact, it was written specifically because of this context. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't talk about it that directly because I don't want to put people on the spot and I don't want people to feel that they're being judged. But there are certain passages in the book that I quite consciously intended as a response to the impulse to cancel that arises from a feeling of defilement. Um, and so uh, the, the primary example of that is the chapter of my book that deals uh, with Frederick Douglass, and especially with his great speech um, that he gave in 1852, I think, on uh, what the meaning of the 4th of July to the slave. And it's, it's just an amazing, amazing speech it, it, because of, of the way that he embodies all of the virtues that I am trying to commend in, in my book. When, when Douglas says, he says, what I look at these the 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 founders of of America, and I hear the celebration of what they have done, and uh, on this Fourth of July, and he says it's a day of festivity for you, but it's not for me. It's not a day of festivity for me, and it's not a day of festivity for him because the lack of courage on the part of the founders meant that he was born into slavery. Um, and meant that, that his escape from slavery was very uncertain. And, um, 
he he says I, I I can't rejoice on this day because while I have my freedom, uh, many many millions of people with my color do not have theirs. And but then he says, but you know what? I read the works of the founders and I listen to what they said, and I realize as he puts it, they were great in their day and generation. They were truly great. Um, and, and that balance, right? They were great in so many ways, and yet they fell short in ways that have been catastrophic for people like me. I mean, you know, you could, you could, it would be so easy for Douglas to say, I have nothing good to say about these people. Um, and yet he sees them as people whose ideals were exactly the ideals that they should have had at a time when many people did not have those ideals. The problem is that they did not live up to them as fully as they needed to. And so the balance there between uh, acknowledging the validity and indeed the necessity of the ideals and also acknowledging the ways in which even the best people don't live up to their ideals. That is such a model of charitable engagement on the part of someone who could claim this, sorry, this is just too painful for me. This is just, this just there's, there's too much pain here. No, he doesn't do that. He like looks it right in the eye and I wouldn't demand that anybody do that, but I think he's a great example. And I think sometimes if people think, and I've been in situations like this with students before where they have said, I don't think I can read this book because this is really painful to me. And you, you want to take that seriously. And sometimes I've said, let's read something else. And sometimes I've said, okay, don't read these parts of the book, but read the rest of it. And sometimes we've come to an agreement that they're going to read it, even though it's painful and we're going to talk through it. I think in that kind of situation, especially in a university setting or any sort of teaching setting, everything, literally everything depends on whether there is a relationship of trust between the student and the teacher. You can get students to read almost anything if they know that you care about them and that you wish them well and that you want to do everything you can to secure their well-being. If that's if they know that about you, then then they'll go with you into some difficult places. Um, and it won't always be easy, but it's usually really rewarding for, for all of us if we have that, that mutual trust. Great. So our next question comes from Chris Baca, who asks a little bit about the perhaps contrarian nature of a self-help book that instead of talking about <laughs> mindfulness in the moment, looks to the past. And Chris asks, do you see the notion of expanding one's temporal bandwidth as being at odds with some of the current notions about living in the present? And if so, why? Yeah, I think... I think that a lot of people who talk about living in the present think that they are endorsing mindfulness, but they're actually misunderstanding the concept of mindfulness and they're misunderstanding the concept of living in the present, right? That the, the um, if what you are doing is uh, cultivating a kind of silent meditative um, 
embrace of the world around you, then you are getting yourself out of the dire hose, right? If you're, if you are, if, if instead you're, you're texting and you're receiving texts and you're, and you're doom scrolling is another word that people use uh, these days, and you're continually engaged in that, you're actually not in the moment. You're not in the moment. You're, you're not present. You're actually always waiting for the next thing, waiting for the next thing, right? And genuine mindfulness is, uh, is nothing like that. And genuinely being in the present is nothing like that. There is, um, there's a sermon, I think about this uh, uh, so often. It's a sermon that Rowan Williams gave about 20 years ago, where he talks about prayer as being like bird watching. That if you're a bird watcher, you know that you might sit there all day and nothing will happen, right? You'll never see any of the birds that you came to see. Nothing will happen. And, and you have these long, long periods in which you know that nothing will happen. And he said, but in those, in those periods, what you do, if you're a, an expert bird watcher, is you keep your mind, and I love this phrase, he says, both slack and attentive. That is, your mind is kind of quiet, it's not tense, it's not working things over, but it's still attentive, so that when something does come within your field of vision, you will recognize it. And he says that he thinks that's what prayer is like. Being in the presence of God is like this. He says, you, you might have a long, long period in which you're waiting on God and nothing is happening, but then that moment comes and, and, and God is present uh, and your mind needs to be slack, but also attentive to be ready for that when it happens. That I think is real, really being in the moment. And that is really being present. But that is a discipline that is very difficult to achieve. It's something that I'm certainly not very good at, but in a paradoxical sort of way, breaking bread with the dead is something that helps me to that. That is, the, the habits I learn of patience and forbearance and reflectiveness and um, not just going with immediate responses or instinctive responses, but having more considered responses, taking, setting something aside for a while to think about it, then coming back to it, all of these things are slowing me down and they're giving me more patience. And that is actually all really, really good training for prayerfulness, meditativeness, uh, being genuinely in the moment. So in a strange sort of way, if you want to be truly present, then it's really good to prepare for that by spending a lot of time in the past. That's great. Many years ago, I wrote a book um, that I called uh, Theology of Reading. And in that book, I talked about thinking of books as our neighbors, as temporary neighbors, and, um, and to read them uh, with Jesus's great twofold commandment in mind, that the, the, the summary of the law 
is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And loving your neighbor in books is easier than loving the neighbor who is actually right next door and maybe is a little obnoxious in more ways than one. But I would really encourage you to think of treating books as your neighbors and encountering them as practice for loving your more immediate neighbors. If you think of it as a kind of a training in charity, then encountering old books can be even more enriching to you. That's great. Alan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you to all of you for joining us for the past hour. Have a great weekend. Thank you.